Rabbi Eliezer ben Shemua Omer, Yehi kavod talmidecha chaviv alecha keshelcha, umara rabcha kamora shemaim. Rabbi Eliezer ben Shemua said, let the honor of your student be dear to you as your own, and the reverence of your teacher like the reverence of heaven. How do I introduce to you in just a couple of minutes a beloved teacher? I'll do my best. <laughs> Whose Torah opened worlds for me and who no doubt I seek to revere like the reverence of heaven. I would not be standing here as one of your rabbis were it not for the vision and dedication of Rabbi B'nai Lappi. Rabbi Lappi, who some of you may remember from Cantor Addy's installation, a love of Rabbi Lappi is one of the many things Cantor Addy and I share, is the founder and Rosh Yeshiva of Sfara, a traditionally radical yeshiva that seeks to engage, educate, and empower people who transform the Jewish world into a more creative, representative, and engaging place, all from a queer perspective. Ordained by JTS, Rabbi Lappi also serves as the senior fellow at the Institute for the Next Jewish Future in Chicago, and as an associate at CLAL, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, and as an associate educator specializing in the application of queer theory to Talmud study, Rabbi Lappi has served on the faculties of universities, rabbinical schools, think tanks, and communal institutes. Rabbi Lappi was named to Jew Radhika's sexiest rabbis list of 2013. <laughs> and as her website says, she's a little embarrassed about this, but a little proud as well. The Forward's 2014 list of the most inspiring rabbis and was awarded the 2015 Mintz Family Foundation Award for Creative Jewish Education and is a 2016 recipient of the highly prestigious Covenant Award for Innovation in Jewish Education. While not learning and teaching Talmud, you might find Rabbi Lappi flying an airplane, making shoes, or inventing something as she is a patent-holding inventor. All those things are true. I've seen some of it with my own eyes. My first time studying with Rabbi Lappi was almost 18 years ago in Berkeley. I know, can you believe it? I was sitting in the Beit Midrash, struggling to translate just seven words of the Mishnah. I had never once sat with the Hebrew Dictionary, and I tried to work out the meaning of a rabbinic text with no background. It was excruciating. After some time, Rabbi Lappi came over to me in my chavruta. She placed her hand on the daf we were working on, the page, and looked at me and said, close your eyes and recite the text. What? I exclaimed. I can hardly read it, and you want me to memorize it? No. Nevertheless, she persisted. Close your eyes and try to recite the words. Frustrated with her, I reluctantly closed my eyes. Somehow from the depths of my Jewish soul came those few words. I still remember them now. One who causes damage to his fellow is liable for five things. Tears started to run down my face, not because of the words, that they're not that profound. But Rabbi Lappi looked at me and said, this is now yours. I owned it. Now the tradition was inside of me. It was a defining moment for my Jewish life 
and it helped set me on the path towards the rabbinate. For all these years, Rabbi Lappi has been busy all over the country, taking out the keys to our tradition and handing them to people who never imagined that they would walk through those doors, especially queer Jews, helping to spark a new and unexpected generation of Jewish leaders. It is such an honor to have this great teacher of Israel, this profound teacher of Torah with us on this Shabbat. I also want to extend our heartfelt gratitude to Diana Grand and John Holman for their generous sponsorship of our scholar. It is because of the dedication of people in our community like Diana and John that we are able to learn from leading teachers of our time like Rabbi Lappi. Thank you both so much. And with that, it is my great pleasure to welcome Rabbi Bene Lappi to our Bima. Oh, I'm pretty much done in already. Good Shabbos. Shabbos. I also want to thank, before I begin, um, John Holman and Diana Grand for making this weekend possible for me. I'm remembering with such fondness the last time I stood in this spot. It was at your installation, Marsha. And I remember joking with you all that that uh, there is this idea that every rabbi has just one sermon and they give that sermon over and over again every time they speak. Well, last time I was here, I gave that one sermon camouflaged as Marsha's installation talk. Oh. Is that better? Feels good to me. Good, to, good for you? All right. Um... Well, here it is again. It's really the same talk. <laughs> Just this time, it's not going to be camouflaged as an installation talk. But it's my one sermon. It's all I got. <laughs> so what I'd like to share with you tonight is a story of Jewish optimism for a time of enormous change in the Jewish world from the vantage point of just this one queer Jew. And my story of optimism begins with a bit of my own personal Jewish story, so I hope you'll indulge me. How's the mic? Is that a, sound good? All right. I knew that I was gay by the time I was 16. Being the mid-70s, there was no Ellen, no Ellen Grace, no internet, and I didn't know anyone who was gay that I knew of. I assumed that I would live a life without love, a life of loneliness. But when I was 19, 
I fell in love. And she fell in love with me. And the moment we kissed for the first time, I understood that love is love. And I knew that I would be okay. I came out to my parents not long after that, and well, it, it just did not go that well. Things were very difficult between us, and I eventually decided that taking a little space would be the best thing to do. So I moved to Japan for what I thought would be a year. I ended up staying in Japan for nearly a decade. Things were that bad. But they got better. My parents are big fan fans, and we're all good now. But... I fell in with a group of spiritual seekers, expats who were in the East looking for answers. I became a devout Buddhist and was on my way to becoming a Buddhist monk. When I had one of those Rosenzweigian moments when I thought, you know what, I've got to give Judaism just one more chance. <laughs> I had grown up as an Orthodox Jew and I was full of guilt at what was now an active rejection of my upbringing. I went to the rabbi in Tokyo and I told him my story. And I asked him what I should read. My goal was actually to learn just enough to reject Judaism and become a monk in good conscience. <laughs> and he handed me a thin volume of Jewish sayings and Jewish aphorisms called Pirkei Avot. You know, who is wise, one who learns from everyone, you know it. Um, and now I was really in trouble. Because it turned out Judaism was as smart as Buddhism. Who knew? And then I realized that I really needed to start learning. So I asked myself, who knows the most about Judaism? Rabbis. Where do rabbis go to know what they know? Rabbinical school. So that's what I decided to do. I'd give it five years, sorry, six years, to see if Judaism was really my path. And if not, I'd go back to being a Buddhist. There was just one problem. I was gay, and it was 1991, and the doors of JTS were closed to gay students. But I was so on fire. You see, my parents had told, we were relatively non-observant. Even though we were Orthodox, we would have come, have come to know is called the non-observant Orthodox. That's what we were. Um, and my parents, to justify the fact that we were not very observant, said we were conservative. They said, I, I don't know what to do with that. But so, so I thought I was conservative, and I thought JTS would be my place, and here they, they don't accept gay students. So, but I was, I was so on fire with my desire to learn, and the idea that we all stood at Mount Sinai, and the Torah was my inheritance, as much as it was anyone else's, that I felt justified in essentially stealing the Torah learning that I felt was mine. And going into the closet for six years seemed like a small price to pay. I'm not sure what I was thinking. 
And so I went to rabbinical school. And on my very first day, the president of the rabbinical school was to greet the students at a reception. And he was a half hour late, and when he finally arrived, he said, I'm so sorry I'm late. As I was walking out of my office, the phone rang. And I picked up the phone, and it was Stephen Cohen. Now, Stephen Cohen is a well-known sociologist, and he was in charge of analyzing the results of the 1990 National Jewish Population Study. You may remember that. This was 1991, and the results had not yet come out. This was the survey that was going to tell us how we were doing. What is the state of the American Jewish community? And the president said that he had asked Stephen Cohn, well, what's it going to show? Because the results had already been compiled but not yet published. And he reported that Stephen Cohn replied, well, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that Judaism will exist in 100 years. The bad news is that it will be unrecognizable to us. That was my first day of rabbinical school, <laughs> right? I sort of felt like I had signed on to the Titanic. But then I started to learn Talmud, and I realized that Stephen Cohn was both right and wrong. He was right, I think, in that I believe that in 100 years, Judaism will be unrecognizable to us. But what I'd like to share with you tonight is why this one queer Jew does not think that an unrecognizable Jewish future is bad news. As soon as I began to learn Talmud, it was immediately clear to me that Talmud was not a law code, and it was not the least bit interested in how you light your Hanukkah menorah or how you tie your tzitzis. As I, as I learned the Talmud through queer eyes, the radicalness of the rabbinic tradition was impossible to ignore. The entire document I realized was like Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Raise your hand if you read. Oh no, really? You did, okay, good. It was a handbook of the mechanisms of radical change. A giant casebook, like the kind you might read in a torts class in law school, of how to be a traditionally radical player in upgrading the Jewish tradition. One of my favorite stories from the Talmud in Tractate Brachot is the story of a handful of queer, fringy, radical hippie guys, whom we now call the rabbis, <laughs> who started a little yeshiva, a queer yeshiva, if you will, in a town called Yavne, not long after the destruction of the Second Temple. By the way, I hope I'm being clear because I'm playing a little bit with the word queer, right? You caught on to that. For me, queer is not just about sexual orientation or gender expression. It's about embodying a profound experience of otherness. The insights from which you walk through the world as a critique to the status quo to make the world a better place for everybody. So, okay, back to our story. Rabban Gamliel, the head of the yeshiva, initially a pretty radical guy himself, is so shaken by the uncertain Jewish future 
that he chooses to double down on uniformity and conformity as a way to create unity, and he becomes belligerent, oppressively authoritarian, and a bully, excommunicating anyone who doesn't agree with him. He posts guards at the doors to the Beit Midrash, the think tank and academy where students learn the tradition and learn how to improve it. And he instructs the guards to admit only those who share his worldview. Eventually, his students revolt. They rise up, they depose him, they drive away the guards and throw open the doors of the Beit Midrash to all who want to learn and all who want to join the revisioning project of the rabbis. That day, the text says, 700 benches had to be added to make room for all of those who had been locked out but had wanted in and now were in. That day, the text goes on to say, thanks to the insights of these formerly marginalized and excluded students, all the questions, dilemmas, and disputes that had remained unsettled for years in the Beit Midrash were resolved. as a lesbian who'd made the difficult decision to sneak past the guards by going into the closet to learn at JTS. It was clear to me that the doors of the Beit Midrash that had been thrown open in Rabban Gamliel's time were still, even after 2,000 years, admitting just 1% of the Jewish people and needed to be thrown open even further. But it wasn't until June 27, 2003, six years after I was ordained, that I finally really understood how crucial it would be. And I made up my mind to do something about it. Because that day I was sitting on a subway in New York City, and I opened up the New York Times, and the headlines read in three-inch letters, Supreme Court overturned sodomy laws. It was the Lawrence decision. And I sat on that subway car and I wept. Because when I came out, I knew only two things. Number one, that they put people like me in jail. And two, that somehow I was against God and Torah. And I cried because I realized the world had just changed. And never again would a kid come out and think they put people like me in jail. And I knew that that case had been brought to the Supreme Court because of Lambda Legal, a gay legal advocacy organization and I realized that the world had just changed because queer people went to law school. And I knew the Jewish world wouldn't change until queer people went to yeshiva, as queer people. And that day, Svara began. 
I started Svara to be that yeshiva. I created Svara to open up the doors of the Beit Midrash to the other 99%. To the queers and the radicals, to the activists and the artists, to the Jews of color and the disabled Jews, to the Jews who never went to day school or Hebrew school or camp, to the folks, Jewish and not, who went out and learned their Aleph Bet just so they could be in the room where it happens. Okay, I just saw Hamilton. <laughs> so, I did. That's far we figured out a methodology to make it possible for everyone, even those who just have their Aleph Bet, to learn exactly the same way we learned at JTS. In the original, never in translation, straight from the Vilna Shas. It's essentially a rabbinical school for the masses. And every student who learns at Svara begins their learning with an orientation to what the project of the Talmud is. And to my admittedly queer take on the rabbis and what I think they were up to. It's called the Crash Talk, and because we're going to be learning Talmud together tomorrow, I'd like to share a quickie version of it with you right now. And uh, we'll unpack it even more at dinner. The Crash Talk begins with a single hypothesis, and this is where the audiovisual visual part of the audiovisual comes. Can you see that? Not so much. Take the mic off. Mm. Better? Yeah. Better? Yeah. That's OK. I don't need to be over there. I'm good. All right. So I'd like to begin with a single hypothesis. And the hypothesis is that all human beings share the same basic big questions of life. The biggies, what are they? This is the audience participation part. Why are we here? Are we here? <laughs> what else? The biggies. Is there life after death? What happens after I die? What, ha what happened before I was born? Where did I come from? Is there a God? What else? Why is there evil? Why do such terrible things happen if there indeed is a God? I didn't need to prompt you because I believe it's encoded in our DNA to have these questions. It's what it means to be a human being. Every culture, every tradition, every religion, comes into being for one and only one reason, to answer those basic human questions. And it will do so by means of a master story.
If you're Jewish, that master story is called Torah. And if your master story is successful, it can last a really long time. But hypothesis number two, every master story will ultimately and inevitably crash. One of three things will have happened. One, you found a more compelling story whose answers you like better. Some event in the world will have taken place that makes your story's answers no longer work. Or something inside of you has changed. You're different. And your story's answers no longer seem true. That's a crash. Now you have to figure out who you are, what, you're going to what you believe in, how you're going to live your life. Crashes can be communal, societal, institutional, familial, personal. Not only does every tradition have a master story, every country has a master story. Think the American dream. Every family has a master story. Every synagogue has a master story. So what do crashes look like? Let me give you some examples. And they lived happily ever after. That's part of our master story. Divorce, crash. Everybody's heterosexual. I'm gay, crash. A woman's place is in the home, feminism, crash. And God created the world in six days. Carbon dating, crash. There are three and only three responses to any crash ever. Option one. You deny the crash and you revert to your master story and take refuge there. Yeah, that didn't happen. Batten down the hatches. And you build a wall around that story to keep out any inconvenient truths. This is often a phobic, again, that didn't happen kind of denial. It's about keeping all your goodies ultimately, but it comes at a price. Or option two. You accept the crash, and you completely reject your master's story. This is the baby with the bathwater kind of thing, and with option two, you give up everything that you once had in your master's story, not just the parts that crashed. And if you look carefully, you'll see that option one and option two are actually opposite sides of the same coin. They share the same wrong-headed myth that master stories are fixed, eternal, unchanging, and immutable. But stories do crash. It's not bad news. It's not an unfortunate fact of life. It is life. It's how life nudges us forward. It's how we learn and grow. It's how traditions learn and grow. How families and shuls and companies and countries learn and grow. And so there's a third option. 
And that's very good news. But before we look at option three, let's first map all of this onto Jewish history. The biggest crash in Jewish history was arguably the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE. Now let's look at how these options played out. Crank us back one year to 69 CE. The temple was about to go down. Things are looking bad for the Jews. Romans are winning. Who's going option one back then? This is your turn. Yes, the priests. That's right. Corollary to the crash theory. If you are employed by your master's story, you are probably going to be an option one person. So Jewish professionals in the room, let me say that one more time. If you are employed by the master's story, it's going to be very difficult for you not to be an option one person. So, of course, yes, it was the priests who were going option one. They were the ones who couldn't imagine any other way to be a Jewish human being. They were willing to fight to the death to save their understanding of what it meant to be a Jew. And we know how that ended. When was the last time you saw a Jewish priest? Right? Okay, who was going option two back then? Not yet. Christianity doesn't happen yet. I used to think that was option two, but then I decided, no, that's probably option three. So stay tuned for that. Who? Elisha. Yeah, Elisha Benabuya. I think he's three. Stay tuned for three. Turns out, almost everybody else. Historians tell us that 90% of the Jewish people went option two after the destruction. Why? Because that's what people do. Most people will go option two after any crash. I'm out of here. It's over. Option two was assimilation. But there was one small group of queer, fringy, radical, hippie guys. You know that those are called the rabbis. Far fewer than are in this room right now who had a different idea. They went option three. They accepted and embraced the crash, took the elements that still worked from the master story, and created a new, radically different Judaism. A Judaism that would have been unrecognizable to a biblical Jew. You see where I'm going with this? Imagine the year before, biblical Judaism times, they were roasting their lamb in their courtyard for Pesach. And now at Pesach, they're sitting around a table holding up a piece of matzah saying, this is my Paschal offering. Really? Last year, they were standing knee-deep in blood, slaughtering their finest animals to have a relationship with God. Now, 
They're reciting magic formulas, Baruch HaTadonai, because they were told God will hear them. Really? I mean, who is believing that is what I would like to know. Like the village idiots? I, <laughs> or was it the visionaries? If you're Jewish today, you're Jewish because your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, biological or spiritual, were some of the 10% who got the vision, who understood what those queer guys were doing. I see what you're doing, they said. This doesn't feel very authentic to me. It feels thin. It feels made up. It doesn't feel very Jewish to me. But it will to my grandchildren. So I'm in. We are at the tail end of another crash today, and like it or not, we're going to have an option three Judaism that will be unrecognizable to most of us. I have no idea what it will look like. But I suspect that learning Talmud might just be one of the ways lots and lots of Jews do their Jewish in the next option three Jewish future. Svara, the little yeshiva that could, is now 15 years old. Maybe 18 years old, huh? And what started out as a little yeshiva for queer folk has become a big queer yeshiva for all folks. Last year, 1,500 queer folk, gay and straight, learned at Svara. That's 1,500 benches. That's a lot of new answers to life's big questions. As William Gibson famously said, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. I'm not worried about the Jewish future. I've seen it. It's already here. It's happening in lots of places, including right here. And including at those 1,500 benches. Every one of you, right now, is either going option one, option two, or option three on your Judaism. Option three is, you're the future. Hang on to your queerness, own your outsiderness. That's precisely where your insight, your moral intuition, which the tradition calls svara, comes from. Most of your fellow Jews will not be coming along. That's okay, don't worry about that. That's the way it works. And because you're living through the crash, the option three you create will only partially work even for you. But in time, what you create will get better and thicker. And if you don't give up, it just might work for your grandchildren. Thank you very much. See you in the Beit Midrash. Shabbat Shalom.